All right, everybody, welcome back and thanks for watching No Putts Given. We've got a fun one today, at least I think. We're gonna be debriefing this past weekend's The Match, breaking down the best spikeless shoes of 2020 and digging deeper into the future of direct-to-consumer golf balls. Guys, let's get it. No Putts Given is powered by My Golf Spy, the most extensive reviews in golf. Before you buy, my Golf Spy. Nine million readers do it every year. Check us out. All right, we have Chris, Adam, Tony, I'm Miranda. Harry's stuck in the facility this week. So uh, first and foremost, welcome everybody. Say hi. Hola. Hey. Episode 40. Episode 40, yeah, we've made it this far. What What do you think the over, over under was, Tony, to start? How many episodes do you think we'd get to? Two and a half. <laughs> rounded up to three yeah after i saw the first one i thought that was it i thought the show was over but it's progressed quite a bit too hasn't it i think so you know it's something it take it takes a while you know one of the guys we reached out to before we got into this and started doing this basically said you just got to put in the reps you know and at first you want it to be really you know look good sound good and all that stuff but really it does. It takes some reps and it takes some getting comfortable in front of a camera, which is not something we've ever done. Uh, so about 40 episodes in, I think we're we're starting to <laughs> hit, hit some type of a stride. I don't know what that <laughs> looks like from the viewer's perspective, but hey, it's getting there. Well, awesome. Well, anyway, like I said, today we're going to be talking about um, this past weekend's The Match with Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, Phil Mickelson, and Tiger Woods. Of course, Peyton and Tiger came out victorious. Uh, what did you guys think of the coverage this weekend? I had a blast with it. I didn't watch a minute of it, so <laughs> Okay, well, Tony, if you want to take a break, that's okay. I feel like yeah. I just got here, but all right. I feel like we always got Tony's barometer, right? Like minutes of big break watched as compared to minutes of live golf <laughs> it's tough you know tony's going his whole life without netflix right and during the pandemic he finally broke down and got netflix so he's ah. got so many shows to catch up with that golf just seems to always never get above what is that show you watch good boys or whatever it was called the other night oh no that was a, yeah, it was a movie <laughs> good boys yeah. oh that one's really funny is that with the the three kids um and they have and, to go and, and get their dad's And a lot of sex drunk. toys? Yeah, yes. that's, yeah, that's the one. <laughs> it's really funny. Okay, well, while you were watching that, Chris, Adam, and I were checking out the match this weekend. It deluged half the time. The weather was not great, but they seemed to have a good time. Yeah, they did. It, um, you know, anytime I can see Tom Brady lose at something, it, it does my heart good. Um, Doesn't happen watch often. It. No, except when he's playing Peyton Manning, right? We've, I know no, the history. No. Historically. You led me down the wrong path about that last week. <laughs> I didn't want to be so stubborn like I know all about Tom Brady. So I, was, I relented and I was like, you might be right about that one. You weren't. I, I wasn't entirely right, which means I also wasn't entirely <laughs> wrong. And the differentiator was that it was the playoffs. Now, you can probably speak for Tom because I, I, I certainly don't know him, but... 
from what I know of Peyton Manning, he would much rather win in the playoffs as opposed to the regular season, you know, when it, when it actually counts and actually matters. Anyway, long story short, no, um, I thought it was good. I, really you know, focused to me, today. Yeah, I know. <laughs> to me, the bigger takeaway watching that was, um, and again, there's some context here, right, which is golf's kind of the only thing on TV, so all the numbers and ratings and things are totally skewed because kind of has a monopoly on, on live sports right now, but even with that and, and the fact that this wasn't a real championship, they're not playing for a PGA Tour prize, it wasn't a major, it wasn't a WGC event, anything like that. It was a much more relaxed atmosphere. I think the telecast, what it showed to me is, uh, and I'm thinking there are network executives watching this too going, hmm, I think we just got a little bit of evidence of, in terms of how we might be able to make golf um, broadcasts fun or fun, uh, you know, more enjoyable, more engaging, something. Because, frankly, you know, watching golf on TV is absolutely dreadfully boring in general. It, it really, be. really is. My Sundays living with Harry are often <laughs> very – there's this, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A monotone voice in the background, and we're doing a bunch of different things while it's just on in the background. You know, you know what golf's great for? Taking naps. Taking a nap. Oh, mm-hmm. man, it is the best to kick yep. off a Sunday afternoon nap. Yeah, my yeah. wife – constantly oh hey totally roped me in with this one she's like hey is uh golf on this afternoon like yeah Ah, that's how she's like sweet i need a nap (laughs) (laughs) and that's just how it is i mean golf brought it's hard and and i don't necessarily fault the announcers or anybody Mm -hmm. in that sense right now because it's really the platform and how they've structured it's not set up to be entertaining the way that they have it right now. So you saw a guy like Justin Thomas, right, walking alongside as an on-course commentator. Now, again, can you do that in a regular PGA Tour event? Yeah, I don't know, probably not. Having players mic'd up, uh, actually hearing more of the exchanges between players and caddies and having the announcers actually say less, mm-hmm. um, you know, I thought was interesting. Listening to Phil explain a shot and then execute that exact shot was maybe my one of my favorite moments of the whole a whole event because it was like I was sitting watching a little tutorial with Phil how he's going to hit the shot and then he pulls it off that was entertaining to me I think it makes it more mainstream too well Chris I got a question for you so if you take uh the two right golf before the pandemic and how it was covered and golf after the pandemic and how this was covered what did golf not do well before that was boring and what did golf do well in this broadcast that was you know something that uh, might be a predictor of the future of what future golf broadcasts could and should be. Yeah, I think two things. Number one, it humanized it a little bit. Like I felt like when you watched it, and, and again, I can't stand Tom Brady from a football perspective, whatever, being a huge Broncos fan. I liked him better after watching that for four hours than I did before. You know, he had a sense of humor about himself. He struggled with some things. So, again, I think it humanized it. I'm not sure how you do that on the tour because that's certainly something they haven't done as well. Players are, I mean, so many so serious, right? And and I get it. Um, but at the same time, I got to think there's a lot of guys out there and gals out there that have much more personality uh, that maybe they would let show kind of come through. And maybe it's not a PGA Tour thing. Maybe it's an LPGA Tour thing as well because there's phenomenal golf being played on the mini tours at the LPGA level, the PGA Tour level. Um, but when you get to know these different people, you get to have a different understanding of their brand 
Justin Thomas is a perfect example of that too, right? Like after watching that, it's like, God dang, this dude's pretty funny. He was ribbing Tiger a little bit here and there. He told, you know, told Charles Barkley to see see if his fat ass could dunk, you know, and and throwing stuff out like that. I was like, you just gained a fan right here. Mm-hmm. I thought that personality is awesome. And actually, for not having done it before, at least to my knowledge, it's not an easy job. And he made it seem seamless and natural and easy to be an on-field commentator. It's not easy. The crazy thing to me, though, is like golf has, you know, been everybody's been telling people forever, like, dude, this is boring as hell to watch. I take naps to this stuff. Right. So I'm surprised no one else has ever really tried something like this and actually stuck with it, because let's face it, golf is boring as hell to watch. And this wasn't boring as hell to watch. So it seems pretty obvious when you see it. I think we might have been propelled into the future of what the future of golf broadcasting looks like. And that old way might might be gone forever you know what specific elements from this past weekend could they implement we probably won't have charles barkley on every broadcast although i thought he added a lot to it do you know how ridiculous it is that a broadcaster in the stands not even near the golfer whispers when he talks to the people on tv like i mean what are we doing you know what i mean like what is this all about that's not that's not even real they have to inject certain things like bird noises and all this stuff artificially to make it sound more like they're, I don't know. There's a lot of things that need to change and it's more just be yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Have fun, uh, have entertaining people on there like Charles Barkley and Justin Thomas and listen to Phil. Maybe Charles Barkley has found a new calling. <laughs> well, and I wonder too if players would respond differently to somebody else being out on the course with him. I think that's mm-hmm. why I've seen a guy like David Faraday do so well is he has a different rapport with the guys that are out there. There's something Justin Thomas, again, he's a long way away from, from doing that, but are there other people that are either former players or in those circles that maybe could engage with the players a little bit more or they'd be more willing to and provide some more of that authenticity. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that CBS or whatever said, hey, you know, Costas, uh, McCord, you guys are out of here. It's gotten too stale. And then they replaced it with arguably something even more stale in Davis Love um, the third. Here's an opportunity. I mean, if you want to become less stale, you just saw uh, some of the, uh, you know, some of the modeling for that. I think one of the best parts of it was having all of the competitors mic'd up. And I think that's an easy way, like like you said, Chris, to humanize the players. But do you think when the guys are on tour, they would be open to being mic'd up and hearing the strategy behind a shot or some of their personality? As I mean, they're at work is the only thing that I'm thinking, that they might not want to have everything they say at work recorded and broadcast to a national audience. Yeah, you'd have to put it out to the tour players, probably a lot of no's initially, mm-hmm. because like you said, it's it's a pretty big leap from where they are right now. Now, again, a lot of them are used to having microphones around, particularly if you're playing in, in later groups and being on TV and that kind of stuff. I could see it being a little more successful on, like I said, Corn Ferry Tour, um, maybe some of the other tours, LPGA, uh, again, stuff like that, where you might get more players that are maybe perhaps a little bit more receptive um, to that. But, you know, then again, there's maybe a guy like a Pat Perez that's like, yeah, screw it. Let's do this. I think there's a couple ways, right? Like the NFL doesn't mic up everybody necessarily mm-hmm. on the field. They can mic up a few people or maybe you mic up one group and, you know, Ricky Fowler when he's playing with Justin Thomas and something and see how it goes where you already know that group has some camaraderie between them and some comfortability being on, you know, mic'd up. The other thing is, you know, like 
Chris just said, you could use the corn fairy as almost like a XFL to some degree to kind of test the grounds and test the water on some of these things to see how well people like it. There isn't the issue there though, the, the corn fairy really doesn't have that, that sort of full blown production that you get with the PGA tour. So that's, and, and to a lesser extent, even the LPGA, right? You don't have as, as many towers and as many cameras and, and things like yeah, that. Th- so thanks for screwing up our idea, of- Tony. Come on, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, sorry, it's, it's always, there's logistics involved, no doubt. But I was thinking also, my home course, where we have a Corn Ferry Tour event now, one thing that struck me watching the guys last year is how many of them are trying to build their own brands. Right. And seeing how these guys on the next level or guys that are playing Corn Ferry Tour that have been on the PGA Tour, et cetera, uh, have, have established some of that. And does this give a younger generation an opportunity to start connecting with a different audience, building some brand awareness of who they are? And does that help sponsors engage with them in a different format as well? Again, I yeah, maybe need more some more TV towers and, and, and whatnot. But do, um, do we need an XFL for golf? Here's my only thing there, though, is we're talking about getting a broader audience for what is already professional golf. How much smaller does the audience get if it's the XFL of golf? That's what I worry about is that you're not going to get any viewers. Yeah, Tony Tony always talks about this, which always puts it in perspective. Um, I'll let Tony do it because I already know he probably knows what I'm talking about. But when we relate the ratings of, you know, something that the golfer would go, man, this is a big event in golf compared to like a middle of the season who gives a damn nfl game the 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 ratings for sunday afternoon at the masters typically are about the same as what you'd see as a a afternoon mid-season nfl game so as close as golf has to a a real super bowl you you could argue right oh the fedex cup is what they're trying to to build that up as but really like augusta is the one that everybody cares about that's that's the one people want to see and, and ratings for Sunday at the Masters are, yeah, like I said, mid-season afternoon NFL game. Not not like a garbage matchup, maybe like Cowboys-Packers, that sort of thing. Like, you know, stuff people watch, but... Or Patriots-Broncos, Chris. <laughs> no, no, that would do, that does way better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, so seriously, it, it is like that. So it's important to, to keep in perspective that while there are opportunities to improve, improve broadcast and things like that... Going all in on an uh, in terms of investment, you have to believe that you can fundamentally change the viewership demographics and increase viewership to numbers that that rival larger productions like the NFL. And we think that you could maybe do that just by injecting more personalities, not necessarily Charles Barkley per se, but someone like him that adds some color to it. Couldn't hurt. Couldn't, I mean, yeah, that's that's really how much how much worse can it get than what it is. Honestly. How much worse can it get than putting something on for my purpose of taking a nap? I don't know. I mean, I stay awake more often to kids' baking championships, so oh. I don't know what that tells you. Is that like a specific show that I need to look into? Yeah, probably. Okay. I'll talk to you after. <laughs> okay. Noted. <laughs> um, but anyway, I oh, one thing. I don't want to stop this discussion before we talk about Tom Brady's birdie, Chris. How cool was that? You know which one I'm talking about. You know. It was one of his top 105, 106 shots that day. <laughs> I mean, no, probably right yeah, in come there. Come on, I about probably fell right off my there. couch because mm-hmm. I didn't think it was going to go anywhere near the hole. Then it bounced beyond did it he. and came back. Honestly, it was a it was a phenomenal shot. It was, you know, 
it, it was quintessential golf, right? Quintessential eight handicap golf. You scrap it around, some good stuff, some bad stuff here, there. There's always one shot that keeps you coming back. Mm. And uh, and that was definitely, like I said, one of his top 105, 106 shots that day. Yeah. I got a, I had a buddy send me a text said that uh, Titleist had provided Tom Brady with lower compression Pro V1s and basically <laughs> deflated his golf balls. <laughs> Guys. And so, just for the record, what would a low compression tour ball be now, Tony? Now that we have a baseline, it was like seventy-five, seventy-seven. Yeah, I think I think the I think the floor starts for a legitimate ball that gets played on tour. I think the the floor is probably eighty-five compression. So, if you were to deflate a Pro V one, you could get it to eighty-five. Yeah, so Tom Brady plays 82 compression Pro V ones <laughs> is what we just established. There you go. And split his pants. Uh, well, anyway, I thought that was a lot of fun, um, and I hope that they do inject, or even if it's not on the tour, that they do more events like this, whether it's taking celebrities or just guys that wouldn't typically play in the same places playing at the same time. I thought it was fun. Well, that that's kind of the AT&T Pro-Am, isn't it? And that's maybe not mm. the best example, but yeah, I mean, something to inject some life. Yeah, I'd watch Steph Curry play. I'd watch Steph Curry yeah. and Jordan and some of these guys like that have good games. I, I don't ever need to still see Bill Murray play golf again. I don't need to see Joe CEO that's a twelve handicap that's you know playing as a seventeen or whatever. Well, playing, I'll but. ask you that question since everyone on you know social media has been asking, who do you want for the match three? LeBron. You got to keep Tiger and Phil, right? So I think that's a given. I want Tiger, Phil. Michael Jordan, Steph Curry. That's Ooh. a good one. No, Michael Jordan, LeBron. That's like the age old who's better, Michael Jordan or LeBron. I don't. Th- I don't think LeBron can even. I don't think he has much no. game as Jordan. Probably and not. Steph and Curry. LeBron get Lagan. <laughs> no. So you think Jordan and Tiger are definitely on the same team? Oh yes. Oh yes. <laughs> and just think that the smack talking because you know Steph likes to talk, and Phil never shuts up. That could actually be pretty interesting. I really did enjoy Phil, actually. I thought he had a blast. If, if, if no one else had fun, Phil did. Yeah, I agree. He looked like he had a good time. All right, guys. Uh, this week, we also had the best spikeless shoes article come out for 2020. Um, and I was talking to the tester extraordinaire of soft goods, and he said it was one of the hardest tests that he's done so far. Um, Adam, can you maybe give us a look into why shoes were so difficult to pit against each other this year? It's by far the best year of spikeless shoes we've ever tested. Um, so that in itself... Uh, was difficult for the testing part of it because one, there's a lot more people making spikeless shoes. So spikeless shoes is a, is a growing trend um, in the shoe category. Mm-hmm. And so there's more competitors, much better designs, more of the shoes that are coming out now, especially in that obviously that spikeless category, you can take straight from the course to go to Costco to buy your toilet paper, you know? Or putters. Or putters. Uh, that was not the case before. And like we've said before, they're comfortable right out of the box. They perform right out of the box. Before there was this big divide between like this lifestyle shoe that did not perform well, that looked really cool. And this shoe that performed really well, but looked really bad. Right now, you know, this year with the winner being the Adidas, um, code chaos, they've, they've got the best of both worlds. And then you've got shoes like the Under Armour has gotten so much better so fast with their golf shoes. 
Uh, you've got Enesis, which is an unknown until last year, that makes such a comfortable shoe. And then you've got even people like New Balance. And New Balance is an interesting one because they have tried to get in and out of the golf shoe space before, and it really just never, uh, it really never landed where it needed to. But now they've taken the best of that running type shoe and golf and kind of combined them together. And that actually won as the most comfortable shoe this year. So Adidas Code Chaos won as the overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ennis's shoe came in with best traction. And the New Balance Fresh Foam came in as the most comfortable shoe. So, you know, at the end of the day, there's more people making better shoes. Uh, more shoes can be used for more diverse, uh, you know, options for the consumers. And even companies like Callaway, which had never really made a, a good shoe before, stepped up their game tremendously this year. So there's just, the competition is stiff across the board this year. What made Adidas number one, the Code Chaos? I know it was close that any other shoe could have taken the number one spot, but it was, it was somewhat undisputed that Adidas was going to finish first this year. Yeah, I mean, it's the best of all worlds to some degree, meaning it's super incredibly comfortable. Uh, it's got good traction, great stability. Uh, it's durable. It's just, it's a great golf shoe. If you want to go play 36 holes, which a lot of people do, and, and some people didn't used to because their shoes couldn't make it 36 without giving them blisters, you can go right, you know, buy them today, put them on right out of the store and go play as many holes as you want mm-hmm. and uh, have no problem with them. So Adidas really also changed this year with their styling. And that mm-hmm. whole code chaos thing was about just kind of shaking up the shoe design and kind of just kind of starting on the outside of the box and working in rather than in the box and working out. And they nailed it. Uh, it's a it's a great shoe. I'm also curious that you, you mentioned that spikeless shoes are sort of closing the gap on performance with their spiked predecessors. Um, how are they closing the performance gap? Because there's going to be some sort of um, differences in structure. So there's going to be, there, there has to be some sort of a gap there, but how are they doing better? They're getting smarter about, when you, when you swing, there's a transition, right? And mm-hmm. there's areas that you need more traction and less traction and different types of materials in regards to the nubs or whatever you want to call them. And you can see them developing the right patterns with how your body's sways during the swing or moves during the swing they're coming up with different materials for the nubs on the bottom uh it they're coming up with boost type materials like adidas does for incredible comfort um they're getting better at separating the different nubs for the dirt not sticking i mean they're just getting better on all fronts and it looks like they're doing more work on spikeless than they are on the Mm -hmm. bottom patterns of spiked right so they're putting more effort energy it looks like into spikeless and I was learning the other day as well that shoes can actually help you gain swing speed. How, do, how does it do that? Yeah, how is that yeah, even so, possible, right? Right. So that goes back to, I want to say, three or four years ago at the PGA show, FootJoy launched a, a fitting platform for shoes. And, and the whole premise behind it was that this idea that, hey, different different people use their feet differently in the mm-hmm. golf swing. So in really simple terms, right, you could have a guy who kind of has like wiggly kind of loose toes and really kind of almost tickles the ground, you could say. And I'm so sorry. he would do I, I know, right? Those. I hate it when people have wiggly loose toes. <laughs> the tickle things, yeah. <laughs> um, 
so but it was so that was kind of like the the idea behind the freestyle shoe that they did several years ago and and that's that's sort of a, a I don't want to say unstable shoe but a, a different different platform right to allow movement in the footbed versus kind of what you would think of as a the traditional golf shoe with the kind of the rigid keeps you locked in place and firmly anchored to everything structure and what they were able to show with this platform was depending on on how you used your your feet in the golf swing you could actually pick up appreciable swing speed up to three miles an hour if you were let's say you were a guy who who belonged in that kind of freestyle type shoe and you were in a, one of these highly structured things if you moved to a shoe that better fit your swing swing speed gains could be appreciable now it was kind of a really cool thing and it it, it when you think about it, it makes perfect sense unfortunately the platform appears to have gone nowhere um which i guess if you kind of think about it in terms of golf when you, you figure how little fitting is we we joked about it last week with the wedge right nobody gets fit for a wedge and and now you're supposed to get fit for your shoes for something more than just size it's you know it's a stretch for how golfers buy things but just just kind of a really cool idea and, and something to keep in in the back of your head that you know as we say in our in in the shoe guide you a shoe should never be so so unstable that your foot is actually kind of spilling out and off of it as you swing but you know there is an element of, of different stability for different types of golfers and that that's really where that swing speed thing comes from yeah so while the platform doesn't really exist through foot joy it doesn't mean that you can't go out there and and do this on your own so 70 percent of what they found was 70 percent of golfers were wearing the wrong size shoe Hmm. For the most, yeah. Meaning, do you think it was because our golf shoes sized differently than, say, like a New Balance traditional <laughs> running shoe? Would the golf shoe be sized differently? So they're using what size they think they are, and they end up being wrong in the golf category? A lot of it had to do with, with the width. So, hmm. you know, again, you're sort of a lot of the shoes we buy come in a single width, and you kind of you see that a lot with, with golf shoes. A lot of a lot of the issues with, with people saying, hey, this, this hurts my foot and causes blisters comes from buying a shoe that's, that's fundamentally the wrong size. And a good portion of that is, is not getting a shoe that, that's wide enough or potentially buying a shoe that, that's too wide for a narrow foot, things like that. Well, Miranda, I don't know if you know this, but most of us that go buy shoes have like 20 minutes to pick out a pair of shoes and we're like we put on one know. pair and we go i'll take these right close so close if you that. saw my closet you'd understand i'm a shoe connoisseur so <laughs> well i think well, the other interesting part too is that you know it's some of it's the degree to which consumers want to see shoes as technology hmm. and as a piece of golf equipment i would actually throw that back on the manufacturers as well is if you want people to see it as technology right like i think about skiing and if you ski in a ski boot that's either too loose or too tight or the wrong size you're going to really notice differences you know um mm. if golfers can equate shoes with performance but really more than that if you can get a company say yeah offer it an x number of different widths right like to come up with like, a like grinds right it like sh shoe grinds maybe that's it <laughs> shoe grinds tony's company of shoe grinds you know but i man, if a company came and said hey here's how we're going to fit you it's a different way of doing it we can quantify the benefit dude if i'm adidas i'm saying bring your shoes into the to the to the uh launch monitor right and mm -hmm. we're gonna you bring yours we'll bring ours and i mean think about how many golfers what golfers have spent 500 bucks whether it's a new driver super speed lessons weight training whatever it is, right? And uh, so golfers are are very willing to go out there for three or four miles an hour. 
it sounds crazy. It sounds ludicrous. It sounds like, you know, we've gone down, we've gone crazy, right? To say that it's possible to get fit for a shoe and gain that. But if a shoe company kind of did it in the launch monitor setting, I think it might move the needle in the shoe industry for golf. It's really intriguing. It remains intriguing, but man, like fitting is such a difficult thing to, to push beyond the driver even to, to get down to, you know, have you been have you been fit for your drivers and your irons and your golf ball and your wedges and and your shoes? Like it's like, oh, what am I gonna play? I would think that shoes, in terms of getting fit, are probably more subjective than clubs or irons or drivers or anything like that because it's something. Whereas, like a driver isn't connected to you, your shoes are connected to you. So, isn't there some sort of subjective? These just feel better than these, whether or not they're the best ones for you. I think if like most people that buy shoes, like I told you, have 20 minutes and they go, I'll take these. Mm. If somebody sat down and gave you three options and one of them was definitively a better fit, I think you would be able to tell the difference, mm -hmm. especially if they had you swing in those two different shoes really quickly. There's there's not a whole lot of subjectivity to sliding and moving and being you know, stable in a shoe. It's pretty noticeable right away. There is kind of an interesting separation there, right? This is if, if you can accept that, that golf shoes are effectively golf equipment no different than than any of the other things we talk about right when you go into a, a dick sporting goods and you pick out a shoe and you're like hey they all right this one's in my size and i i like this color at no point in that process do you see a golfer go into the hitting bay and go all right now i'm going to see how this feels in my swing and, and how i move with it on like that would i would i would assume that that's exceedingly rare that something like that happens and it you know, just kind of thinking about it it shouldn't be can you imagine if somebody puts on a pair of shoes and goes up to the dude and be like, hey, man, I got these. I want to see how fast these shoes are. You know, can I swing some? He'd be like, what? Oh, a, yeah. <laughs> so say a pair of shoes is the one like you get fitted. Do you then sacrifice things like comfort if it gives you a faster swing speed? How most people do it is they let's say they come onto my golf spot and they go, hey, that's the first place shoe. That's so ugly or whatever. I ain't buying that shoe. Then they go down to number two. Eh, don't like that. They go down to number three. They keep going until they find one they like the look of, and they go, okay, it ranks well enough. I like the looks. I'm going to buy it. So a perfect example is like Nike. So many golfers love Nike shoes because of the brand they have. So many of their shoes are not good golf shoes, right? So that is the problem where you put somebody in a shoe and you go, man, this shoe works really well. You gain three or four miles an hour, but it's not available in an option you like the looks of. It, that's that's the tough part and that's where spikeless shoes are getting better you know so many of the designs this year looked really good and perform well as you know uh, you know they're not sacrificing either yeah, a few years ago right when sketchers were the best shoes we tested in this category there was a lot of pushback it was just like yeah simply well, because they're sketchers yeah it's just i don't mm -hmm. like the design it's it's a it's an ugly shoe that kind of thing and so you know, now you're starting to see more attractive designs also provide the same type of comfort and, and stability and, and overall performance. So I think I would have fallen into that too, because I hear Skechers and I think the white clunky things that kids used to wear at school, but that's not what they are anymore. Right. Especially not in golf, I would assume, or are they? Oh, uh, they're, they're getting better, but they're still, they're still. <laughs> it's a solid seven. <laughs> <laughs> I would say this, the two things that I've seen, or three, that have tested really well in our testing, that you hear the people that come in and go, I don't give a damn how good that thing tests, 
I ain't playing it. Mm-hmm. And that is the Kirkland ball when it first came out because they didn't want to be embarrassed. Uh, the Snell ball because the logo looked so bad. And then the Skechers shoes when we came out with that test. I mean, those three people said, I don't give a damn. Not playing them. How has a brand like Enesis, who, which was in the U.S. at least relatively an unknown throughout the years of they've been involved in your test, how have consumers reacted to wearing a brand that might not be mainstream or mainstream or popular, but the value concept is there and they're up there in performance as well? Have com- consumers reacted well to brands like that? Well, I'll go back to the examples that I just gave. Those three examples that people said there's no way in hell I'm playing those things. Mm-hmm. Most of those products all sold out really quickly. So somebody was buying those things, right? right. So when it comes to the Enesis, they did really well because people that wanted comfort said, I don't care what they look like, I'm going to buy them. But we have spoken to them and the the issue that, they, that arises is they don't know how to design products for the U.S. golf market. Mm-hmm. And they readily admit that. So that product is a European-looking product. And, you know, over there, it's not looked at like a Skechers over here. But over here, I wouldn't say it's to the level of a Skechers, but it's definitely a, you know, like Tony said, it's a, it's a seven for looks. Yeah, I remember when I was at the facility last year, uh, when the Callaway guys were out and Sam had them on, and I'm like, what the hell are those? And it's like, I'll give a damn, they're so comfortable. I'm like, right. <laughs> I know John Barber's yeah. a big fan too, right, of Enesis? I think that's all he talked about at the PGA show. <laughs> <laughs> Barber's a fan of any ugly. Can we, can we just can we try to go down a bullet list of what John's a fan of real quick? The How much squares, time do we have? Square shoes, I learned that, right? Wilson, like- Wilson clubs, uh-huh. links. I only knew him Thanks. for like three days too. John's like a, a small brand aficionado, really mm. kind of his sweet spot. Very yeah. much a loyalist though, so I appreciate the spirit involved in it. Patriots, Patriots. <laughs> ah, yes, yeah. he is a Patriots fan. That's not so much a small brand. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, moving on. Guys, I want to delve back into the world of direct-to-consumer um, companies, specifically talking about golf balls. We were talking about this before the show, and I think there's an interesting topic that not a lot of consumers would think about. Adam, why don't you go ahead and jump right into some of the things we were talking about before um, we went on air today about direct-to-consumer golf balls? Yeah, so part of the the opportunity uh, and how a lot of these companies got started in this DTC golf ball space where you saw them all blossoming, right, is because these these patents that were expired from already existing golf ball companies after 10 years were available for them to use, right? They were in the public domain. So the reason that's interesting is because they took those old patents, some of the companies did, and used them. And when the average golfer would go hit that ball, you didn't see that much difference, right? So you went, wow, man, I'm saving all this money. You're really, you're really buying 10 year old tech, right? So that's awesome. You can create your own brand. You can name it whatever you want. You can create whatever logo you want. You know, you don't have to have any R&D because somebody else already created the R&D for you, right? But here's the interesting thing. Now that you've created your brand and you have people loving your ball or your logo, basically, where do you go from here? Because once your ball is five years old and you've got to come out with your second ball and your third ball, are you going to invest in your own R&D or are you always going to be 10 years behind everybody else? 
Yeah, I think I think for a lot of these brands, you're going to take the best of what's available from your overseas factory, a small portion of it developed or at least tweaked in-house, but a lot of it, again, is is spillover from that, that 10-year-old intellectual property. And so that's a trick here, right? Because with, with the USGA clamping down and with so many limitations in place, it, it's harder to, to show evolution. And so you can kind of get away with not evolving to a point. Uh, and, 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 and you can sell a ball for less because you're not spending anything on legitimate R&D and, and trying to come up with better dimple patterns. You know, we talked in a show what last week or the week before about Ping's approach to engineering, right? Where they try and make small improvements in a lot of areas to finally get to something that's better. That, that's, that's what you pay for when you're, when you're paying for a Titleist or a Bridgestone. You're, you're paying for that that incremental improvement and, or you can, you know, spend, spend less on a DTC ball and, you know, get, get technology. That's a little older quality control from what I've seen in early ball lab testing that that's maybe not as tight and things like that. And, you know, in some cases we saw, I think a Kirkland, the Kirkland, the, the four piece, uh, single use golf ball that, that came out and was <laughs> immediately pulled off the shelves. Some of the stuff we saw with with the cut ball during our, our ball test, and you know those, those aren't isolated examples. You see it from time to time in, in lower cost balls, especially, or sometimes even a big name brand really makes a mess out of something. But the the, the cover technology, the um, the patents on injected urethane covers, and the and the chemical process called crosslinking that binds that all together, that stuff is still heavily protected. Bridgestone has a lot of patents there. Callaway has patents. And it's why you see covers that, that maybe aren't as durable or covers that have to be thicker and things like that. And it's, you know, it makes a small difference in performance that the average golfer may not see, but it's absolutely real. And, and that, that's kind of where the separation is in a lot of, in a lot of cases between DTC brands and, and, and big brands. It's, it's the little things that, that accumulate over time. Yeah, and the two questions that kind of raised for me, and you really kind of answered one around the USGA, right, creates the sandbox. So it's not that they can produce a ball that's any faster. Um, that's been regulated for decades. A long time. A right? Long time. Probably longer than, than people think. And so the differences that they're able to build in there are going to be, you know, it, it, if it's a difference, is it a difference that matters to you? I may not want more spin around the green. So if a ball comes out that has more spin around the green, it may be new and improved, but it may not be improved for me. And so I think that's part of the evolution is how they're able to carry different lines and different balls that cater to different players. Um, But the other part of that is it almost feels like then we're also going to see a separation within the DTC world. Like there's the, uh, you know, like, Tony used this great example of, um, you know, if I call the pizza joint down the road and I order a pepperoni pizza, did I just engineer a pizza or did I just order one from somebody that already built it, right? So what a lot of these DTC companies, they're just ordering pizzas. They're calling up the factory saying, hey, give me your stock three-piece ball. How much is it? Yeah, throw this logo on it. Great. I want X dozen. Here's the price. Awesome. (laughs) Tony put it best. Uh, Some company had an issue with the quality of their balls and they wanted to blame us, right? Because we exposed it. <laughs> and Tony basically said, don't, don't complain to us. Complain to the people that you buy your balls from. Not, <laughs> not that you make your balls with, but where you buy your <laughs> balls, right? Yeah. And the, that wording is very key there because all they're doing is buying balls, right? 
Yeah, don't don't blame us. You know, call the place you ordered the pizza from. Um, yeah. You know, but there are DTC companies. I have to imagine, right within that space, that are doing more than that. They're not just simply ordering off a menu. Snell probably. I mean, he helped design right the factory where his balls are being produced. Currently, he was integral in setting up some of the processes that are there. So it's almost like maybe you might start seeing kind of a yeah separation within the DTC ranks. I mean, Snell obviously builds his own ball, right? He he designs that ball. He has that expertise. The guys at that at, at Maxfly and Dick Sporting Goods, they will they will you know they have some engineers they work with, but that ball is is at least unique, right? Right. Uh, so you, you see a lot of that too. Sort of the difference between all right, I have your big manufacturer ball, Titleist Bridgestone Cavalry, right? Those balls are made by those companies. They exist nowhere else. And then you have kind of the the top tier of the DTC space where you know we we designed these balls we we had a direct role in their design but a factory makes them for us and then and even like to an extent TaylorMade is kind of like that where you know the the cores are they provide the recipe the cores are baked in a factory in Asia and then they come over here and the covers are put on them uh, so you have some of that and then you have the you know basically ordering right off the menu going yeah I'll, I'll have that one and, and that that's a good bit of that space as well. And then within that, a good bit of what where the money goes and, and the separation between between models is is how much are you willing to pay for the, the quality control piece? And, and we see that, you know, even with you know, I mentioned the foremost balls a lot because we see a lot of balls from foremost, even within a foremost product line within the DT space, within brands, you know, you're seeing a variation in quality when we put them on the gauges between you know, one brand and another, and you're, all right, so these guys appear to be paying a little bit more for a little higher quality or at least, or at least tighter constraints, right? It is pretty crazy, though, don't you think, that 10-year-old tech can compete with modern tech for the most part? I mean, quality control aside, right? Uh, but just the tech in general, 10-year-old driver, uh, you know, if you if you got fit for both of those, you can almost guarantee that the 10-year-old driver is not going to perform as well as your brand new one right with golf balls though like chris said it's kind of not maxed out but it's it's been it's been pretty close to it for a long time so it's really hard to innovate in that space it it really it is it's a lot of it is a lot of the investment is with things like dimple patterns right really expensive thing to create between the molds and the testing and so you know, again, with a lot of factory balls they have one or two dimple patterns that work well enough and they they stick them on pretty much everything that comes out. Well, let's just take the Callaway situation, right? Like where they're investing supposedly $50 million. No DTC company is doing that, right? I mean, (laughs) that's a lot of money to invest in the future of selling golf balls, right? Rather than buying them from somebody else and stamping a logo. Those are such distinct differences. Why would you, if you're a vice, invest in R&D when 10 years behind get you almost as good as 2020 golf balls. That was my next question. So is there a need for direct-to-consumer brands to even think about investing in research and development? Because do they have to? Functionally, no, but it's it's kind of, again, so I've been, as I'm marking golf balls and, and really trying to ramp up ball lab, I've been staring at a ton of dimple patterns and really just kind of talking to people and thinking about the implications and why they're different and what that, that means. And it kind of arrived at a situation where you think about on a golf course, right? You hit a shot 
and you've got two balls, one that one that has a better dimple pattern, right? And, and in calm conditions, you don't notice. But with a little bit of wind, the, the, the one where money was spent on the on the dimple pattern and a lot of R&D was put into it, you know, that, that ball maybe comes up three feet short, right? The, the kind of, hey, we have this dimple pattern stock factory thing that hasn't been updated in years and may not work as well with this four-piece ball as it does on another three-piece ball we use it. If that ball comes up instead of three feet, comes up five yards short, right? Or in in, in our ball test out on the, when we did it on the robots, we we saw significantly more than that on on two force equivalent shots, if you will. A golfer is never ever going to see that on the course and think it was the golf ball, right? It's always just right. going to be oh the wind got it or I didn't hit it right. And in reality, it's these subtle little things that that no, you hit it just fine and yeah the wind got it, but if if the dimple pattern was better, it wouldn't have. All right. It's your money to spend, and it's called Ted's Balls, right? That's your ball company, and you're the, and yep. you're the owner, Tony. Yeah. You're the owner, and you've got the decision to make. Man, no golfer's going to know if my ball gets hit into the wind. Do I spend the $50 million? Or do I not spend the fifty million? What are you doing? Well, first of all, that's that's the thing is as a guy who is buying a ball from a factory and selling it to somebody, I may not even know that it's not gonna hold up in the wind, right? That's that's part of it. <laughs> no, but you're the owner of Ted's balls. Oh, if I, if I, if I gotta spend fifty million, then I gotta I, as as the owner of a small direct to consumer golf ball company balls. dumping Ted's fifty dollars into a dimple pattern, then I then I got to sell that ball to you for $75 a dozen, in which case now I have no value proposition over over anything else. Now you've got a company called Clear Golf Balls and no one's really buying them, you know? Do the owners of places like Ted's Balls understand their consumer base and know that if they're buying the cheaper balls, they probably aren't going to be paying as close attention to their golf game or they might not be your elite golfers that notice the difference between three feet and five yards. Dude, I think a lot of these brands got in it because they're like, man, there's an opportunity. This is cool. I know branding. It's I fun, know marketing. Right? It's fun, yeah. right? And then... They started getting people buying it and comparing it and testing it and cutting them open and cutting a few more open. And then they went, damn it. Like these son of a bitches, man. (laughs) Um, Tony, that bastard Tony Cubby's cutting open my damn golf balls and making me spend money. I mean, we'll we'll talk about it. It'll get, you know, and, and right now I know people want us to name names, but we're dotting I's and crossing T's as I've said before, but... And there was a box of popular direct-to-consumer balls that we uh-huh. purchased at retail, ran them through Ball Lab, and 50%, six, 50% of a dozen was over the USGA weight limit. Damn that Ted's balls. <laughs> Those, that is half a box of balls non-conforming. Now, the average guy is never going to know that. Bingo. So why, do, why does it matter? Well, I mean, it's kind of funny. Like if I was playing somebody for money in a tournament and I saw him playing one of those balls, if I lost at the end, you can bet I'd be like, we need to weigh these right now. You know? Um, <laughs> and again, it's one of those little things, right, where the, the average guy is is never going to know that this is a ball that doesn't conform to the rules because it's supposed to. Tony's that guy that plays in like a softball league and he comes up to the ump after game and be like, hey, man, those balls. <laughs> They're playing quartz bats. <laughs> weigh that bat. Man, weigh that bad. Like it's really simple, right? The balls are in a box are all supposed to be conforming, and if they're not, it it just shows that you know there's either a a lack of ability, uh, 
lack of caring or both. But right? again, I'm saying if, you, if you're buying, the most of the people that are buying the direct-to-consumer brands are just out playing with their buddies on Saturdays and Sundays. So are they digging in enough to know? They're, they're playing their buddies for money, though. Right, but are they thinking far enough to think I've got to have the best no. equipment if I want to beat my buddies and the no, dimple and pattern on this one might not be doing no. me any favors. Miranda, here's the thing that I here's the thing that I think, right? People are buying direct to consumer balls for a few reasons, right? You see it from a few different angles. One, because in the beginning they could save money. Value play, right? Mm -hmm. Two, yep. Vice had a cool swag, cool look. Okay. Marketing, right? Lifestyle brand. One of that related to my style. I'm a surfer dude. I wear flat brim hats and I play vice balls, right? It made golf cool. Yeah. It made golf cool. And there's a couple other reasons, right? But at the end of the day, now, the cost thing is, uh, it's, it's a non-starter for me anymore because there are golf balls that are better quality control that cost the same, that aren't DTC, okay. right? Two, the lifestyle stuff, I can understand that, you know, because everybody has a style and what they like for shoes and shirts and golf balls. But, man, at the end of the day... Isn't a white golf ball kind of a white golf ball when it comes to lifestyle? At the end of the day, the only thing that's different on the ball compared to clothes is... Logo. A logo. Print. Ink. Right. Like, that's the only difference. Which is... So, and a dimple pattern. Dimple pattern. <laughs> Tony, yes. tell me more about dimple patterns. I want to know. <laughs> oh. Uh, I mean, you know what? I'm just going to send you. I'm not going to get you started. <laughs> Here's a, a directing to consumer related ball app question. Have you, I don't know if you're at the point where you're cutting them open or if that's something separate, but no, you're not. Okay. I was going to say, no, have you opened any up previously that are a carbon copy of the technology of some of the bigger brands and they just stamped a different logo on it? No, I mean, they're always, it's never going to be exactly the same formulation because different factories use different colors and things like that. It's it's more about the hardness and, the, mm. and things like that versus the dye. But, you know, we've talked it about before, that stock foremost ball, you can you can cut open uh, at Ooh. least at least a dozen over the years. Not not all at this time, right? Many of those designs have, have faded away. But, you know, over the years, there's been a dozen or more. Where you know it's the same ball, different logo, and that's that's not unique, right? Any any ball factory has kind of a stock ball. The thing to you know, just because you don't see it here in the USA and it, it looks original here, keep in mind like these balls are being sold in in Europe and in Asia, like all over the place. So different price points, different logos, things like that. But but ultimately, if it's it's tough, like I I know from from doing the stuff in the lab, even just in this preliminary step, that the, the differences in these balls are, are real. They are quantifiable. In, in the differences just from brand to brand or right, large yeah. OEMs versus direct to consumer? I mean, pick like, yeah, just some, some balls hit the, whatever their spec is, they hit it more often, more consistently, right? But I also understand that the real world differences are, are much more difficult to quantify. And unless you're really really looking for it as a golfer you may never ever notice like and i said in that example like you're you're never going to notice the difference between three feet and 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 five yards in a little bit of a wind you're gonna you're gonna accept that blame every time and, and think it was you and that you came up short when in fact like sometimes it's the ball for whatever reason some some design defect whether it's dimples or 
or we've seen I've found balls where the compression is different on one side of the ball than the other, right? So you, there there are things like that that ultimately matter even if they're they're not obvious. An interesting little tidbit: um, it is hard to quantify, right? And that's some things that we're working on doing, and obviously some companies are working on doing uh, as a marketing thing. So Titleist came out with some social media stuff and some advertising around the how to quantify. Uh, quality control issues with off-center cores. And they basically said that if the off-center core is off 41 thousandths, which is basically the thickness of a credit card, that the shot dispersion can double. So you're talking about, you know, when we would cut open balls and show those Chrome Softs that were look like wonky eyes, right? If, if you took a credit card and it was just a credit card off-center, Titleist is saying that that can double shot dispersion. Now, I would assume that that's with a really high swing speed driver, you know, so that they can magnify that and so people can kind of see the difference. But still, we all hit drivers, right? And if you're talking a ball is off center on the core by credit card, which we've seen them be way worse than that, and it doubles the shot dispersion, that's a that's a thing where golfers can go, holy shit, now if I know that that little thing means this on the course, that's where the rubber meets the road for golfers, right? Like we can keep cutting open balls and doing ball lab all we want. And we will. But we have to actually start quantifying that for golfers so that they can understand what that actually means when you go play golf. Yes. If Titleist is is willing to put advertising bucks to it, uh, Mm -hmm. you can better believe that they've done the research to know that consumers, once they're gonna find out, are gonna care. Yeah, and, and like Titleist, Titleist isn't perfect with their cores either. You know, nope. they'll, they'll admit it. And so as, again, as I'm going through this ball lab process, it's thinking from the golfer mindset and without digging into all the minutia that I go into, right? I just want to be able to trust that it's never the ball that is at fault, right? I want to believe that whatever I see on the course was me and not the ball. And the way to do that and take all this other stuff off the table is to find a ball that that is consistently within a narrow compression range is consistently the same weight is consistently the same size and you know not for anything what conforming is nice too right that's (laughs) (laughs) so do you think we see any of the larger direct-to-consumer brands fold if there is increased pressure to do their own independent research and development I would hope that they would twist the screws on the factory. From an economic standpoint that's what you have to do is is go to the factory and go look guys you got to get better Right, because I can't, I can't raise my prices to Titleist level, because uh, then why? What's the value proposition there? So, but you've got to find a way to tighten up this quality and button things down so that those technology gains are are minimal, and that there is nothing in a in a static measurement that leaves anybody to believe that this ball is not as good as as others. It looked like you had a thought on that, Adam. No, I mean I think what Tony's trying to say is what we're always trying to do, and that's not make the game harder for golfers, but make it easier and more fun. And what that means is reduce every variable possible that you can that would add and kind of amplify the bad shots in your game, you know? How's um, Tub Spy going? My Tub Spy. Tub Spy's good. We got some good questions. Uh, I'm going to go through the ones from this week. We asked around instructors. Should they be ranked or not? Getting some Mm -hmm. really good, actually some very insightful feedback um, had a couple of people throw out some questions they wanted me to ask on there, so I'm going to uh, look at those a little bit more carefully. I got a couple of questions, things I've been been pondering as well. Did, um, any, did anybody ask why you don't put on a f- shirt? 
Did that come up? That would be, <laughs> that would be interesting insight, wouldn't it? Hey, I just got a direct message or a message from somebody that says, next to adding Miranda to No Putts Given, my tub spot is a win. I love the detail. <laughs> I love the details with the bucket hat, golf glove floating, putting cups. Our boy needs some sun, though. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Is that your mom, Chris? Was that? <laughs> it, you know, the other one I got in there was from somebody named TC. Yeah. Oh, I saw that. fan on there. And I'm just, I was kind of. What was it? Because, uh, yeah, so true story what here. Chris it? asked me. Is a bag of dicks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the best. Let's tell that story real quick. No, so, no um, we've told it before. Have Let's we? Tell it once more. Yeah. We can tell it next week. You want to you hold gonna off on that? You're going to make me wait. Oh, yeah, let's, let's hold off on a bag of dicks glitter bomb story for another day. <laughs> now, I want to know, like, what did, what did not me, TC, have to say to you? This person was like, oh, blah, 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 you know, love my tub spy. Oh, it was not me. Oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Good job, Chris. Enjoy this. I'm like, oh, you are my new number one fan, dude. And I'm like, wait a minute. It says TC. I'm being <laughs> no, if it, yeah, I, like, I'm I, being set definitely up. not if I said something nice. That was, <laughs> That's true. It was nice, and that would have taken like four or five minutes that Tony would definitely want back in his life. So maybe Tony has a secret <laughs> account where he gets his niceness out. Like it's got to come out somehow, so he has a secret account that he can do that on that account with. That might be the way. Like he's people doing. have burner accounts when they want to just be overly <laughs> critical and yeah. they don't want exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Tony has like a Santa Claus account. He gets all these repressed happy emotions out. My my happy account is mrpositivity at AOL.com. Chris, I forgot to ask you today. I can't believe I forgot. Did you have lunch and meet? No. uh, I had, sorry, Tony, I had Jimmy John's earlier today. (laughs) I had a free coupon. I had a free coupon. A free coupon, not one of those coupons you pay for? Exactly. Very different. <laughs> so last week, whatever we were talking about, um, yeah, our favorite, you know, different flavors, CBD, tincture oils, whatever. So I reached out to um, to Kanibi, uh, the brand we were talking about last week. Said, "Hey, can I get a pastrami flavored tincture? <laughs> no, because I want something with a little pepper, like something that's a little bit cured, right? But pastrami's got a little little something too." And they're like, "Yeah, absolutely, we'll hook you up." They said mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, so it's like boar's head. So I'm like, so so what we may have going forward instead of my luncheon meat of the week, I may have my meat flavored CBD tincture from Kanibi of the week. I'm looking forward to pastrami. Whose idea was was it Miranda's idea? The sweetest fish? No, that was mine too. Chris, I've I've come around to that idea. I really, (laughs) I saw the discussion on Twitter, and I'm like, that's you know what for. Maybe that's better than steak. If I want steak, maybe I'll just eat it. See, you're starting to understand like how strange it would be. To, to drink something that tasted like dinner? Mm, I don't know. Cow. It's, it's, it was like <laughs> oh. Willy Wonka. Yes, exactly. That's what I was thinking of. What did the um, the gum in Willy Wonka that yeah. turned yeah. Um, violet into a blueberry? Exactly. I can't believe I didn't think of it last week, though. I'm a huge Slurpee nerd. I would do, I changed my answer from last week. I would do it Coke Slurpee flavored. Ooh, cherry Coke or just straight up cola? No, just cola. Like cola flavored. Oh, Coca-Cola flavored Slurpee. Yeah, that's not bad. Mm. So yeah. cola flavored. See, that's not bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm still going with my pastrami. I yeah. like that. That is that is gross. Boar's head specific <laughs> pastrami. Yeah, I'm oh. a big boar's head fan. Unless you have a local butcher that like you're in with, I may or you know Tony knows people in the fitting industry. You know his, his the people. I know people in the meat industry, <laughs> and so I got my guys. I got my people. I say, hey, 
you know, I need a half a cow, you know, whatever. All right, let's cure it like this. Let's do that. Um, might make some phone calls. What is pastro? Wait, I have a question, and this might be a silly question. What animal does pastrami come from? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it's like yeah. It's I just know it's gross, but I believe it is a beef product. Is it? Okay. I believe it is a beef. It product. is okay. Beef. Yes. Was I the only one that didn't know that? <laughs> if you if you if anybody finds some pig pastrami, let me know.